The topic today, at least what we've called, what I've called this, is an application of theology. Theology. I mean, that's not a subject that, especially in this day and age, many people want to talk about. Before you stand someone who has always been a little bit, a little bit strange and odd in that regard, I've always loved theology. I put in the update, uh, in the preparation, a definition of theology, which is pretty decent. Let me read it to you. Theology is the study, the field of study and analysis that treats of God and his attributes and relations to the, to the universe. Study of divine things or religious truth, divinity. You know, most people who are involved in theology take those last couple of sentences, and that's what they would be involved in. The study of divine things, religious truth, divinity. I like the first part much better, and that's why it's always excited my soul. The, the, the study and analysis it treats of God and his attributes and relations to the universe. Brethren, I'd like to challenge you this day. I'm not going to ask you to be a theologian, but I want you to think about how much can I learn about God in 2017? Over what we already read this morning, over in Job chapter 22, acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Brethren, the more you know about the Lord, himself, his nature, and how he deals with this universe, with men and angels and all things in this universe, the more it will lead you to peace. You'll be at peace in your heart and life. Think about the things that we studied about politics. Politics can be so very frustrating, can't it? I mean, you see what needs to be done. You see what happens. You see how far apart they are. You see men who you think are good men, and yet they do other things, and you compromise, and oh, you want to tear your hair out, you know, throw your hands up, right? right. Until you go to God's Word. Amen. And what does He tell you about it? Well, it's going to be the mess that you, we see, right? But more than that, what does it tell you? There's a being that's behind it all. Yes. Amen. That no matter who's in power with whatever philosophy they have, they're little puppets you know, little puppets on a string being guided and directed by the Lord. If you watched very carefully over the last eight years, which some of us were so concerned about coming into, and I'm not being facetious there, but some people were so concerned about the nature of the philosophy of the man who is in the office right now. I don't know about you, but over the last few months, as I look at things, he's a frustrated man. I feel sorry for him. He had intentions, he had desires, he had designs on what he, in all goodness of his heart, we can disagree with those things, but he wanted things done. And very little of them have gotten to be done. It could be very likely that they can be overturned in a few months' time. Who would have thought that? Somebody who understands the Bible would think that. But if you're divorced from this word... If you don't understand those points of theology, of practical theology, oh no, it's been a, it's, you know, all of a sudden you can come to life and think, well, maybe there's something new now. But think of all the time you would have wasted. Eight years of being concerned, of being worried. 
you know, that's one of the reasons why so many of these political organizations, these right-wing organizations, are so devilish. What do they sell you all the time? This is not my point. It's a little rabbit, but let me run it real quickly. What do they sell you? Fear. Peace. If you know the Lord, you're going to be at peace. You're not going to be at fear. Verse 22. Receive, I pray thee, the law at his mouth, and lay up his words in thine heart. If you want to have this kind of peace, brethren, the things I'm going to tell you about today, you've got to be able, willing to receive these things. You've got to go study them out, and then you've got to take a hold of them. You know, brethren, you can have theology books sitting on your shelf. You can have this book, the best book of theology, sitting on your table, on your iPhone, all sorts of places. But if you don't lay hold of it, if you don't learn those things yourself so that they become part of your heart, part of your thought process, part of how we walk in life, it's not going to do you any good. You'll be just, just as discontented. I, I would say you'll probably be more discontented. You'll be more discontented if you say that you align with the God of this book, but you don't really absorb it in your life. Verse 23, If thou return to the Almighty... Thou shalt be built up. Thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. I mean, brethren, this can build up your integrity. It will build up your, the morality of your life, build up the kind of person you are. Right. Tell me, how many of us men want to be just average slummy Joes in this world? I mean, how, how many of us as little boys said, I want to be a nobody? No, we always want to be somebody, don't we? We want to be men of renown. We want to be men of courage, men of character. Study this book. Know the God of this book. It will make you a man of character. Verses 24 and 25, Then, when you've done some of these things, then shalt thou lay up gold as dust, and the gold of Ophir, as the stones of the brooks, verse, the last part of verse 25, thou shalt have plenty of silver. See, it will give you prosperity. Though I'm not here to preach a prosperity gospel because the book does tell us that there's times when you won't have that carnal, worldly prosperity, but I'll tell you what you will always have no matter what. You'll have prosperity of soul. Amen. You'll have that peace where you can, go to you can go to bed at night, lay down, and sleep sweetly. I don't have anybody chasing me. I don't have any warrants against me. I'm not worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. I've got that life of integrity. I've got God. What does it say in that verse 25? The Almighty shall be thy defense. I've got the Almighty defending me today. <laughs> Who cares what's going on outside me? He's, he's, I'm in the palm of his hand. Verse 26. For then shalt thou have... Thy delight in the Almighty. And of any of these verses, this to me is a key verse here. And shalt lift up thy face unto God. Brethren, we can have a relationship with the Almighty. Amen. Jehovah God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is waiting to be our friend. He wants to be our friend. He wants to walk with us. Ladies, men, 
How many of you were lonely and wanted a companion in life, okay? And you found that one person, right? What is so blessed about that? The companionship you have, the ability to take his or her hand and go walking and enjoy the good things of this life. Well, brethren, all of us have that if we'll take advantage of it. Because the Lord wants to take each and every one of us by hand. And you know what? While, guys, your wife, especially when you get down the road, may have children and, you know, there's other relationships, so you can't be with her all the time, right? But he is divisible so that he can be with you all the time. Just as much as he's with me. We can have a relationship with the Lord. Verse 27, thou shalt make thy prayer unto him. Now, a lot of people pray unto God, don't they? Does he hear everybody's prayer? No. But, and he shall hear thee. If you're taking advantage of these things, when you're in that time of need, when you're in that time where you've got to have help and there's only one help that can take care of you, and that's the Lord himself, he is there with his ear cocked in your direction, waiting to hear what you're going to say. He'll hear you. Yes. And you can pay your vows. I mean, the times when we get in trouble, right? When we say, Lord, if you'll just deliver me this one time, I will. You have the opportunity to pay him. But notice... Notice the, the positive aspect of this. This is not saying God's sitting there waiting with the little tally sheet to say, you owe me. No, this is saying, you want to pay it. Why? You were delivered. He took care of you. Jehovah will hear and respond to your requests. Verse 28, thou shalt decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee, and the light shall shine upon thy ways. Make, you can make plans, brethren. When you're doing everything right, when, you're, when your ways are, are the ways of the Lord, when you're thinking about Him, when you're walking in communion with Him, you can make plans and they will be established. How frustrating is it to try to design something, to lay out a course of action and it can't, doesn't come about, right? Things step in the way or... I assumed I would have this resource. Well, I don't, so I can't do that. And that, that frustration. But if you're walking with the Lord, he provides what you need. He gives you the wisdom to make the wise path, the wise planning, and you can accomplish it. I mean, brethren, think about the different areas of life we've just talked about in these few verses here. The blessing there. What's it? Based on? What's the prerequisite for all this? Know him. What does he like? I mean, if I have a friend and I do something that offends him, I can't take advantage of that friendship, can I? Because there's a breach between us and that's got to be fixed and repaired. I'm just trying to point out to you some areas of why, why, Theology, as I'm talking about today, the knowledge of God is important to you. Here are the blessings we've been laid out, but there's all sorts of things that can get in the way. I might not know how to approach him in prayer. Well, but if I'm studying and know how he wants to be approached in prayer, well, that's, that's a problem I don't have, right? See, these are the practical ramifications 
of what could be something very high. I don't want to make this very complex. I don't have either the time or the inclination to make this very deep. We're only going to go through a few passages. This is one of the best ones right here. But I want us to look at about three or four areas of the nature of God. If you want more, oh, please, go back on the website to July 15th, 2012. That's where our brother first started the series on the attributes of God. By my estimation, I think he finished somewhere around January the 20th, the following year. There's around 44, 45 sermons there. Go look at those. Go listen to those. One of the most important things to me, I mean, we talk about milestones in our understanding that the Lord has given us. We had a milestone in that series. Anyone who has studied theology, the very beginning of theology, which is the nature of God, knows that our, the Lord gave our brother something that I've never read anywhere else, never even heard it intimated. People want to talk about, you know, the, the, the attributes of God that only he holds to and then those that can be shared with us. Our brother showed a whole, all the notes, by the way, that you're going to get on the web are on this aspect. It's not on the other theological stuff, but on this part, the relational attributes, how God relates with us. How powerful is that, brother? One third of our study of God's nature is the fact that God wants that relationship with us. And here are all the different aspects by which that is expressed in his word. I've got about, like I said, three or four attributes I'd like us to look at. And think about those, again, from the standpoint of practical. How can we apply this knowledge to our lives? The first one is one that has been a rock. I really, you know... The Lord does different things in all of our lives. We've all come from different backgrounds. And I am so thankful for the background the Lord gave me. I cannot understand, practically speaking, how those of you who came from an Arminian background could live. I'll be, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not being facetious at all. Because the sovereignty of God, how I knew it, as our brother described it, the dominion of God was always there. The Lord, even in the... Strange, at many times, doctrines that were taught by the Presbyterian church I grew up in, that was foundational. And think about that with me for just a moment here. Daniel chapter 4. Take a look at that. That's where we'll center our thoughts around. Daniel chapter 4. We all know this one, right? Nebuchadnezzar. We don't want to look at the whole chapter. We just want to look at a few verses here towards the end where he's learned the lesson. Let's see what lesson we can learn from him. Daniel chapter 4, starting at verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. This is talk, this is remember, the most glorious king, the king of gold, right? And that statue, the most glorious kingdom God points to in scripture. This is the man who God humbled down to be an animal for seven years. You want to talk about some power? 
tell me how many nations want a, a, a madman to come back into power? But he did. And there doesn't seem to be a ripple. You talk about some power and some ability to change minds. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. All of a sudden, they're wanting to shut him out like an animal. The next minute, they're bowing in submission to him. But I, I go ahead of myself. Verse 35, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me and my counselors and my lords sought unto me and I was established in my kingdom. An excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose ways are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Amen. Amen. I mean, if there's somebody who knew that, it was him. A couple of thoughts from this. One, God's dominion is everlasting in extent. I mean, if you're really a good deep thinker, your mind just went off the, the rails. I mean, back here before time started, out there at the very end and beyond, that's God. Amen. He's been in charge of the whole railroad track, the whole line, everything. Right. It said that he was over all kingdoms of men. We're talking about absolute despotic power. Right. Nothing that he wanted done, didn't get done in any of the kingdoms of men. It said it extends to all the angelic hosts. Notice it said there, the army of heaven, he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. That's the angels. You know, just remember, children, you remember what happened to the Assyrians when they thought that they could take over uh, is, uh, Judah? When God had said they weren't, how many angels did it take to slay 185,000 Assyrians in one night? One. Did he have any cuts and bruises from it? No, they didn't even know he was there. 185 battle-hardened, trained Assyrians just went to be with their maker that night. And we're talking about the host of heaven. We're talking about millions. We don't know how many hundreds, thousands, millions of angels there are. He rules them. Think about the power, the might that it takes to do that. It says no one can hinder his choices, right? None can, none can stay his hand. I mean, he wants to do something. Nobody says, no, wait a minute, you can't do that. There's no checks and balances in the... Kingdom of heaven, right? There's no Supreme Court. There's no legislature that says, well, no, we're passing a law. You can't do that, Jehovah. Uh-uh. Anything he wants to do, he can do it. And the next one really should ice the cake if you think about it carefully. Or say unto him, what doest thou? Nobody's even got the right to question him. But daddy, why did you want us to do that? Honey, why do we want to do it this way? 
Nobody's got the right to say that to the Lord. Amen. That is absolute authority. Not just that nobody can get in his way, can slow him down, can hinder him, but nobody even has the right to question him. Amen. Now, you know, brethren, if you just think about it from that standpoint, that's scary, isn't it? I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I've been raised knowing this all my life. That's scary. A being that is so powerful that you don't even have the right to ask him why. Maybe let me jump ahead just a second. Isn't it wonderful how other attributes are involved? Because if it was just this, I mean, do you see Job asking questions? Most of the book of Job is Job saying, God, why? God, God I want an audience with you. Please explain to me. I've been a good guy. I'm a good Job. I've done what you've told me to do, and you're treating me this way? Why? See, it's not that he wasn't acquainted with God. Well, maybe there's a couple areas he could have been better acquainted, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was he didn't like the way he was being treated. And that's what Elihu, when he comes in, that wise young man, he comes in and points out, Job, God's greater than man. Basically, shut up and listen. Don't talk back to God. Say, thank you, God, for what good things you've done to me. And you want to do something else to me? I am your creation. Do what seems best. But that's scary, brethren. And part of what I want you to see, part of the reason I've chosen out some of these different attributes is to realize, as Arminians, right, What's God's attributes? He loves. God is love. Think of cotton candy. Think of, you know, granddaddy dandling you on his knee and, you know, giving you the pony and everything. That's the only attribute they think of. God is not one-dimensional, brethren. Look at some of the other gods of the other people who worship a God. I mean, this dominion, this is very close to what an Islamic person would, would describe Allah to be, right? Oh, he's in charge of all things. But that's about it. And everything else is in the light of this, what I like to call the big green meanie in, in the sky, right? He's up there just waiting for you to make a mistake and I'm in control. I'm going to squash you because you did something I didn't like. Does he have the right to do that? Don't misunderstand me. Yes, he does. Does he have the power and ability to do that if he wants to? He most certainly does. But that's not all there is to his nature. Though I do, before we move on, love that last little bit. And again, you know, the way our brother points out from Scripture, the way God uses people. I mean, it's one thing for some poor bum in the street to say that, you know, to talk about wealth and, you know, and how it doesn't. It's not worthwhile. And we look at it and say, yeah, guy, you wouldn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but when Solomon, who had all the wealth, all the power, the most glorious kingdom Israel, God's people ever had, when he talks about wealth not being everything, we, we sit up and take notice, don't we? Hmm. You mean, Solomon, you having all of this, it, it, it didn't satisfy you? Oh, I'm not, I need to think about that. God, just take that a second. Look at the last phrase of what this all-powerful king who from an earthly standpoint ruled like he was describing here of God. What's he say? His ways are judgment. And those that walk in pride, 
he's able to abase. Amen. He knew that. Remember, he had Daniel, his chosen right-hand advisor, telling him earlier in the chapter, a year beforehand, right, after he's gotten the vision of what God was going to do, saying, repent, watch what you're doing, do what's right, and it'll extend your prosperity. You won't be going through this if you behave properly. And he towed the line for about a year, and then he had the incidents where, oh, look at this great Babylon which I have made. The word comes down. Time to go eat some grass. You're so great, huh? What's it going to be like eating grass for the next seven years? And he was given no choice. He ate the grass for seven years, had claws like an eagle, until where we started, where the Lord took the veil back off his eyes, he put... And put him back in place. And he could say, yeah. Those who walk in pride, he will abase. I think of another attribute of God. Think about his holiness. I love, it wasn't in my outline, but I love it. I cut it down from Adam. Over in Psalm 34. Over in Psalm 34 that our brother read to us and well expounded to us, starting at verse 15 through verse 16. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The Lord loves righteousness. It's not just that he loves it abstractly. He hears. He takes care of those who are doing righteousness. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. It's not just that God hates sin. He's going to cut off the sinner from the earth. Think about that. That's his holiness. Habakkuk, chapter 1. Go over to Habakkuk. Nahum, Habakkuk. Just a couple of quick quick verses. Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 12. Speaking of the Lord, art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore, lookest upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue, when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. And you say, well, Newell, that looks a little contradictory. No. The prophet says right there in the first part of verse 13, thou art of purer eyes than to behold an evil. And again, there's an ellipsis there. Not all the words are there for understanding. What's left out? Thou are of pure eyes, and to behold evil approvingly. Does Does God see everything? Does God know everything? Yes, he does. There's not a hole in his sight where it comes to evil. Somebody's doing evil, so he can't see that. No, he sees it very well. It's just the way he looks at it. How does he look on that? We've already seen back over in 34, 16. 
He looks at that and he says, I want to cut that off. And canst not look on iniquity with approval. God sees it all. God understands it all. He does not approve of the evil, but he does approve of the righteous. Of doing what's right. He does not condone or approve sin, it tells us. And notice, it's his holiness that directs the punishment and the reward. How God decides to punish something is guided by his holiness. We'll see this more in just a moment when we get to one of the passages that we read last night. Good and evil are thoroughly known by him. It's his reaction to good and evil that shows his holiness, that demonstrates it. Look at Genesis 18. Genesis 18, 25. Who do we have here? Abraham, the friend of God. And, and did he know God? Oh, yes, he walked with him. We're turning to the passage where God specifically came to tell him what he was going to do. That's how close a friend he was. He knew there's some wickedness over here in Sodom and Gomorrah. I've got to root out. I've got to burn it up and get rid of it. But there's somebody there who's related to Abraham. I don't want him worried about that. So I'm going to go over and talk to him and let him know what I'm going to do and see what he says. And how does Abraham begin that discussion? Verse 25, That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Brethren, I love this verse because it puts his holiness in place. God always does what's right. What is right, what is proper, what is fitting, that's what holiness is all about. God says this is the right way to do things. That's not. And then as I said, what's his reaction to that? Is it just some sort of ethical discussion or is it an actual, I'm going to root that out and get rid of it. I'm going to judge it. That's why back over in Habakkuk they were saying, wait a minute, Lord, these guys are getting away with this stuff. They haven't been punished. But we know you're better than that. What's, what's happening? Judgment. Notice here in this very passage, we're talking about God coming to judge a city. Judgment is bound up with his holiness. The action of actually doing something about what's wrong. And as I've already said, holiness leads to, to a right conclusion. That takes us now to the passage that we read last night. Ezekiel chapter 18. I hope you enjoyed that passage. Ezekiel chapter 18. I, we're not going to read it, but let me just comment on it. It's very simple. It makes sense, doesn't it? The bottom line of Ezekiel 18 is that the just are rewarded for their obedience. It's not that God's got a, a special group of people that he treats differently from everybody else. He does in one sense. But in another sense, no, he treats everybody equally. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And this whole chapter goes through it both ways. He talks about the righteous man who does righteousness. And he, and he goes through a listing in the Old Testament of what was considered righteousness. Taking care of the poor and hungry. You know, making sure the widow's taken care of. Not, you know, uh, overcharging someone for something. You know, speaking the truth. He goes over all those things and says, 
They're going to be blessed. And then he talks about the man's son who does just the reverse. He cheats people. He lies. He steals. He doesn't take care of widows or orphans. You know, he's going to die. He's got problems. He's unrighteous and the wicked are punished for their sin. And then around verses 22 and 21, we will read this. But if the wicked will turn from his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live and not die. Amen. Notice he's calling the wicked. The righteous, if you look in the context, the righteous are people whose reputation and normal activities are good. The wicked are those whose reputation and normal activities were evil. But when a man who's normally evil does righteousness, repents, and does what's right, God forgives him at that point. He has no problems with him. See, sin is the problem. If you want to be involved with sin, fine. I've got an issue with you, says God. If you're not in sin, I've got no problems with you. Matter of fact... To the extent that you're doing righteousness, I want to bless you for doing righteousness. He comes down to verses 25 and 29 and says, Israel, you're, you're charging me with being unfair. He says, my ways are not equal. Hey, after what I've just described to you, my ways are equal. Your ways are the ones that are perverse. Right. You're the ones that are unequal. That's right. And then he goes on to point out that when the righteous man sins... He's going to be judged for it. He's going to be punished for it. When the wicked man repents, he's going to be blessed for it. Right. Do we have an example of that in Scripture, brethren? Do we have an example? Well, we have many of them. Let me choose two. Turn very quickly to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. We've already looked at the friend of God. How about the man after God's own heart? David. 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we have Nathan coming to David to confront him over the issue of Bathsheba. And you remember, he, I mean, David was a shepherd, so he gives him this story about this man who had a, a sheep. You know, his own, he took care of it. It was his only sheep that he had, his little tender little lamb. And this man came from out of town and said, I need something, you know. And they took the, the man's little sheep. It was like his daughter, right? Like his little daughter took her and offered to this man. David was just incensed with that, right? You know, Nathan says, well, what should be done to that man? Ah, oh, he ought to be... He ought to be killed. He ought to pay back fourfold. And I mean, he was ready to you know, rail down on top of him. Nathan said one word. Yes. Thou art the man. I, ha I had given you any and all of the women, unmarried women in Israel. I'd given you women already, and I'd have given you any more if you wanted to. And you took this man's wife. And you had him killed. And that's starting at verse 7. And look at what he says. Verse 8. I don't know, that's what I just pointed out. But he took his master's wives, gave them to him, gave them the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been too little, verse 8, middle of it, I would have moreover given thee unto thee such and such things. 
Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord, verse 9, to do evil in his sight, that thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon? Now, verse 10, thereafter the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Wow, what a personal judgment. What a price to pay. When we see him later saying, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom. Was Absalom a dirty, rotten traitor to his father? Yes, he was. But all David could, could think about was, why was he that way? Why did God not restrain him? It's because of what I did. I'm the one who caused this to happen. A righteous man who sinned willfully, knowingly. The Lord judged him for it. Amen. Let's think about an unrighteous man. I mean, David's a pretty good example of everything you'd want to be right. What about a man that, I mean, is held up as an example of something you don't want to be? 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21, we have Ahab, the most wicked king that Israel had. I mean, he's pointed to as one of the most wicked kings. He brought Baal worship into the nation of Israel. And in this, if you read from the beginning through this chapter, you have Elijah rolling out many of the things that he'd done wrong and what he did, taking Naboth's vineyard, you know, his wife Jezebel helping to take it by murdering him off of false charges and all the wickedness that he did. But come down to verse 27. Well, actually, let's start with verse 25. But there was none like Ahab, unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all the things, as did the Amorites, which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Oh, bad guy. Wicked man. Verse 27. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard those words, he heard that tirade against him. He heard the prophet of God saying all these things about him. That he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. That's called repentance. And notice as a king, that was a pretty public act he just did. He publicly repented. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. But in, the, in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. God, I mean, it was just like this. God was ready to come down with the hammer, and Ahab humbles himself, and he says, No, not now. He's humbled himself. I'm not going to smash him. 
Notice how God can be merciful to even a wicked man. Would we say that Ahab is going to be with us in heaven? I don't think so. Did he give lip service to the religion of God even at this point? Yes. But the fact that he gave him in lip service, the Lord said, okay, I'm going to be merciful to you. I'm actually jumping ahead of myself. All right, brother. But notice, God is righteous. Amen. When you sin, I don't care who you are, good or bad. You sin, expect to take your, your punishment for it. You do what's right, expect to be blessed and rewarded for it. Think now about the wisdom of God. We've talked about his dominion. We've talked about his holiness. Let's think about his wisdom for a second. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, it tells us around verse 19. The Lord, by wisdom, hath founded the earth. By understanding, he hath established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths are broken up and the clouds drop down the dew. The running of this universe is based on the wisdom of God. Destruction and blessing. Whether we're talking about breaking up something or blessings coming down. That's all part of the wisdom of God. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12 and 51, verses 15. I'm going to turn to Jeremiah 10, 12. They're almost identical verses. There's only one word difference in them. And notice how it reflects exactly what we just read. Jeremiah 10, verse 12. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion, which is a different word for wisdom. If you turn over to chapter 51 and verse 15, that last word instead of discretion is understanding. But we get the point, right? God's wise. The way this universe is put together, it just defies our understanding. How wise he is in things. Uh, some of us, I know Brother, Brother Jim, he loves science. He loves to look at the things that are reasonable that NASA puts out and likes to laugh at the rest of the stuff that they put out, right? <laughs> I've been the same way. I love to study the universe. I love to see how things work. I mean, all you guys that are engineers, if I could have chosen a different profession to go into, engineering I would love because you're talking about how does this world work? What are the principles, whether they're electronic, whether they're micro, on the, you know, the microatomic level, uh, whether they're you know, talking about uh, layout of, of property you know, and runoff of water and things like that, the principles of how things work, you know, how structures hold together, how things move in this universe, it's fascinating. Where did all those rules come from? The Lord, Jehovah, he designed it. He put it together. He is just so wise. And notice in this passage how it talks about, let me find my verse here. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom. Notice how his wisdom and his power work hand in hand. Again, you do a disservice to God and you hurt yourself in your understanding when you try to isolate many times these different attributes of God. They're good to study in isolation, but don't forget that God is more than just 
dominion. Don't think that God is just wisdom, that God is just might, that God is just holy. No, he is wise and he's powerful and he's holy and he's got dominion. You want to put it all together. I mean, we could go on with that one, but I think that one's very easy and simple to see. The main thing is, is there anything he can't do? And the reason I bring that one up is think about from the standpoint of, well, is there anything he cannot do? Mm -mm. We already had that declared under dominion, right? But wisdom says that he's smart enough to figure out any way to do it. And you know what? It's not even in my notes. It's a quick rabbit. We'll run it quickly. But think about our salvation. How does a holy God who can approve, cannot approve of sin, how can we stand a chance in front of him? Well, somebody's got to take, somebody's got to pay for that sin, right? The soul that sinneth it shall die. Well, when did we die? We died in Jesus Christ. Because God was wise enough to say, okay, I'm going I'm to come down in a man. Live like one of them, and I will take their punishment. I'll be their substitute. I'll be their representative, right? It's a representative that got him in trouble in the first place, right, Adam? I'm, I'll be their next representative. So that I can see that, yes, was the penalty paid for that sin? Oh, yes, it was paid. On the cross, he paid our sins. He died the death. Not that, and I mean, don't think about just that physical pain and agony of the cross. Think about being abandoned by God who you've always been in perfect fellowship with. Think about suffering from the eternal God. His wrath poured out on you, on your personality. That's what Jesus Christ took for us. If that's not wisdom, brethren, if that's not wisdom, all the aspects of how he did that, and then, then decided that it's not enough that these people be forgiven. I want them to be my sons. I want to show what a great being I am in mercy and kindness. So I'm going to adopt them. So the angel, the angels, you know, those, those, those angels that can kill 185,000 Assyrians in a blink of an eye, they're looking down and saying, Lord, but these are just things of flesh and blood. Well, you, you did what? They're your sons. Amen. They're going to judge us. And they're smart enough, right? They're smart enough. They know they're not complaining. They're just marveling at it. Right. Yeah. We're not the only ones, brethren, who are looking at the things going on in this universe. There's a whole angelic realm that is a much better than the rest of us, right? Yeah. They're smarter, more powerful, but they've got a different role. We've got a role to play, too to be the sons of God. Talk about wisdom. Final one I want to look at. Look at Psalm 145. Psalm 145, let's think about the goodness of God. You knew I had to get that one in, didn't you? That's my favorite. That is my favorite attribute of God. All, all things that are kind and good, <laughs> merciful, Whatever, stem from goodness. In Psalm 145, Psalm 145, we starting at verse 5. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. 
And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts. We've talked about that. And I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness. And shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all his works. Every work that God does is covered with his goodness. Brethren, there's all sorts of people that we run into, we see in the news that, as another minister would describe, are cordwood for hell. But you know what? They have pleasant things in this life. They have friendships. They have people they love. They have good meals. They maybe even have most, a lot of them will have success in this world. Why is that? The goodness of God. They're getting their good things now. We see the children of God many times who are put down, oppressed, have problems, have difficulties. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for eternity where they'll be with the Lord, where all the tears will be wiped away, right? right. Where we'll even forget those things because we're there in the presence of the Lord, enjoying Him as kings and priests, right? A royal priesthood there before the king of the universe, standing there judging angels, enjoying fellowship with other saints from the past. That's the Lord's goodness. The abundant remembrance of his great goodness. How great is the goodness of God to a wise man? Let's go back to David for just one second. You know, there was another time over in 2 Samuel 24. God didn't hold this one against him. Where he said, let's go number Israel. Even Joab, that hard man, that wicked man who was part of his entourage who kept the armies of Israel. Even he said, David, we don't need to do this. This isn't smart. David said, no, go do it. So he went out to number the nation and came back and it smote David's heart. Oh God, I should have done that. Nathan comes before him and said, I'm going to give you some choices. You've got the choice of seven years of famine. You've got the choice of, of let's see here if I can remember it now. Um, X number of months running before your enemies, three months, I think it was, running before your enemies, and you've got the choice of three days of pestilence. What do you choose to atone for this? And what did David say? He said, I'm going to trust in the mercy of the Lord. Do not let me go under the hand of man. Humanitarianism? Good Lord, protect us from it. I don't want to be under the tender mercies of man. David wanted God's judgment and allowed that to come upon him rather than trusting in his fellow man. Now finally, as we wrap up, I want us to think about one other, one other passage of Scripture. Hebrews 11.6. I mean, we should be able to quote this, but I'm going to be careful and turn to it so I don't mess it up. Talking about faith, brethren. 
Because chapter 11 of Hebrews is the hall of faith, as some people talk about, call it, apt description of it. But without faith, it tells us, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, what do we mean by he is? Do we just need to have some sort of bland belief that God exists? No. We need to believe that he is what we've just talked about what this book says he is. Do you do that, brethren? Do you know him well enough to believe that he is all-powerful, all-wise, holy, and merciful, good, kind? Notice, I'm not putting one of them above the other. I'm just saying they're all there. Do you believe he's that? Because you see, if you believe he's holy, that means, as our brother pointed out well this morning, I want to repent of my sins. I want to hold back from sin. I don't want to walk in sin. I want to stay away from it. Because I know, even if I am one of his elect, I'm going to be punished. I'm going to have problems if I sin. So I need to repent of my sins. I need to get that out of my life. But also, I'm going to trust in the mercy and love of God. If I do have one of those cursed personalities, not that he cursed us with it, but some of us use it as a curse, okay? That, oh, I've sinned. Oh, how can I stand before holy God? Because that holy God told his apostle of love to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even the things I don't know about, when I confess this one, he's purging others as well. So, we believe that he is who he declares himself to be, and we diligently seek after him. We want to become acquainted with him. And what a comforting invitation that is, brethren. If you read the rest of that chapter, see what he did. See how he took care of people. It's, we're stupid. That's the only way I can put it. We're stupid if we do not pursue him. So in summary, the dominion of God tells us that Jehovah always has held sway over the affairs of this universe. That men and angels are subject to his choices without any right to question him. But his actions are based on truth and wisdom. In His holiness, we see that He never condones or approves of sin. Matter of fact, His holiness guides His judgments of sin and rewarding of righteousness. See, it's a a blessed two-edged sword. The the side that cuts is if I sin, He's going to punish me for it. But the other side is that if I am righteous, He's going to bless me and reward me. Did he need to do that? Either way you answer is right. Did he of necessity, of some external necessity, need to do that? No. Did he by an internal necessity, because it's his nature, need to do that? Yes. He blesses those who are obedient. Wisdom. All Jehovah's actions are guided by his wisdom, and his wisdom guides his power both to bless and to curse. And finally, his goodness. He is abundant in goodness. 
gracious, full of compassion. He's slow to anger. He's of great mercy, and he shows goodness to all men. His tender mercies guide all of his actions. And I won't pull that back and just say for the righteous. They guide his actions everywhere. And finally, wise men will choose his chastisement over human compassion, over throwing themselves on the goodness of mankind. Brethren, I hope these thoughts have been beneficial for you. I hope that they will encourage you to seek the Lord, to acquaint yourself with him so that good may come up into your life. The Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Please join me in standing.